This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to researcher and writer Joey Ayub. He's going to be talking to us about the recent situation on October 14th where a full-on gun battle broke out for several hours in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. Joey's going to explain how this happened, what led up to it, and he'll also be explaining how the two main militias involved, Hezbollah and Amal, kind of have a grip on the country right now. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. So obviously there was this uh, this this horrible situation last week in Lebanon, Beirut specifically, with all you know there was gun battles, um, several people were killed, um, but that started off because there was this protest right um, about this this judge involved with the port explosion last year. Before we get into the kind of chaos and the gun battles and how that started, maybe we can just start at that and start about like why was this protest actually you know why was it happening all right well the quick answer is because hezbollah called for it mm. and they called for it uh the day before uh threats were being made in, in the previous days and weeks before that happened but you know hassan nasrallah was pretty direct about this he wants the judge and hassan nasrallah being obviously the leader of hezbollah mm. uh has been pretty direct about this he wants the judge Tariq Bitar, uh, removed now, this judge is actually the second judge tasked with um, investigating the uh, August 2020 port explosion, um, you know, the, the explosion in the port of Beirut. The judge before him was forced to resign. Uh, and we found out not soon, you know, soon after that he was also being threatened and he received a number of death threats, that sort of thing. Uh, Tariq Bitar, as of now, has not resigned. Uh, he seems to actually be uh, pretty brave, to be honest. Um mm given that he has himself also said many times that he has received direct threats from, from Hezbollah and or from Amal, uh, Hezbollah's main ally in government right now. And so this culminated in the October 14 events. Um, yeah, the clashes, essentially the gun battles, as you mentioned, but that's that's sort of the background. They, they, they were told beforehand to go um, at 11 a.m., I believe, on October 14th to protest and to demand that George Tari Bitar be removed. Right. Um, and why exactly is it they want him removed? Well, obviously, they will give you their reasons. They yeah. will say things uh, as they've been saying so far. You know, uh, they would say stuff like Tari Bitar is compromised. He doesn't like us. He is, you know, working in league with the Americans, you know, kind of the usual stuff. Um, obviously, without presenting a single shred of evidence, they have their media scape, you know, they have their media environments, they've been pushing kind of the same stories. Um, the ironies, and maybe we can get into this a bit more, is that while the clashes were actually happening on October 14th, Najib Mi'at, sorry, uh, Nabi Habari, the Speaker of Parliament, leader of Amal, uh, main ally of Hezbollah, was actually meeting with the US ambassador. So, you know, there's a lot of those same discourses that are being presented if you want now the why they are so intimidated and terrified i guess you might say by the you know investigation in port of beirut a lot of people will have the theories mine is i think rather straightforward 
it does seem likely that the ammonium nitrate that was that was present at the port of Beirut had at least something to do with Syria, although we don't exactly know in details what. It may be that. It may also be, as in both, that uh, any kind of serious accountability in Lebanon is dangerous for these people. And I'm not only speaking about Hezbollah or Amal here. The, the, you have to remember that the entirety of what we usually call post-war Lebanon, which I usually put in quotations, i.e. since 1990, roughly, 1990, 1991, when the, what is usually called the Lebanese Civil War, you know, which was in fact multiple wars, when, when they officially ended. They ended in, a, in, in with a peace agreement and with a, an amnesty law that forgave most crimes committed prior to that date in 91. And so effectively, the warlords that were uh, running the show during the wars, especially those that were running the show in the 80s, simply joined government in the 90s. And a couple of them, one went in exile, one was in prison. They came back in 2005. They're actually part of the story. We'll probably get into them as well. Uh, so, you know, the the, no, the, the notion of the, the very idea of accountability in Lebanon is more dangerous to this establishment class than anything that real or fictional um, enemies can pose to them, if you see what I mean. And so for me, the answer is pretty straightforward. They don't want an investigation, period. Investigations are not good for them, whether it's Hezbollah, Amal, or the others. As it happens this time around, because they are the dominant parties, they are the ones opposing it. Yeah, it definitely feels very fishy. Um, I know what you mean. Like both, either way, it's just like, yeah, it's like they don't want anything you know, no light shining upon them, I guess, in this situation. Um, maybe before we get into into this a bit more, maybe you can just explain who Amal is, because I had a lot of people, you know, I was kind of said, oh, Hezbollah, Amal fighters, and people saying, who's Amal? Like, who, what's that? Um, maybe you can explain that for us. I know they're outside of Lebanon and the Middle East. They're kind of lesser known. Yeah, yeah. They, so Hezbollah comes came out of Amal. Amal is the first... Yeah. Uh, Amal, I think the translation in English is like the movement for the dispossessed or something like that. Uh -huh. um, founded by uh, Musa Sadr and a number of others. Musa Sadr, some people might know him. He was an Iranian-Lebanese uh, politician who was very likely kidnapped and murdered by uh, Qaddafi uh, some years ago. But anyway, so uh, Amal, so Hezbollah comes from Amal. Um, Amal is the, the, the party that managed to get to was the most popular party with a section of the Lebanese population up until roughly the mid 80s when Hezbollah started coming into the scene. And in fact, the la one of the last battles of what we call the civil war was between Amal and Hezbollah. Um, Amal was being supported by the Syrian regime at the time, Hafez al-Assad's regime, and Hezbollah was being supported by the Iranian ones. They sort of cut a deal in the end and Although it's kind of a simplification, what ended up happening, and remember, this is in a context where southern Lebanon was still occupied up until the year 2000. So I'm talking yeah. about the 90s. Mm -hmm. That basically the deal was that Amal would take care of government stuff because everything works by sectarian quotas and that they're both part of the, the Shia sect. Uh, like Amal would, you know, take care of uh, government stuff. Nabi Hiberi became Speaker of Parliament since, and he's been in that position since 1992. Uh, again, the leader of Amal and the, the Speaker of Parliament. And Hezbollah would take care of, uh, you know, resistance stuff. That was essentially in the 90s. That sort of changed in, in 2000. Hezbollah progressively joined uh, the government. And, you know, long story short, that's two decades now. They are now effectively the dominant party in government. 
they don't have the highest number of seats, but due to the sectarian uh, represent, you know, how, how the, yeah, like the, due to the sectarian political system in Lebanon, you don't have to have a majority of seats. You just have to, it's basically coalitions. So they're, they're among them. So Amal, Hezbollah, and the Free Patriotic Movement, the party of the current president, are the three dominant political parties at the moment. Right. And how is it now then that Amal and Hezbollah are basically side by side every time there's, you know, they want to run out with yeah, guns yeah. and whatever? In, in, in Arabic, we just essentially, they're called like the, the Shiite uh, duo because they right. work together and, you know, everything has a sectarian title in Lebanon. Um, so, yeah, they are essentially allies. Uh, kind of like as maybe as a parenthesis, I would say that their alliance as of now is strong, but I wouldn't be entirely sure. Like, I wouldn't be confident enough to say that it's a permanent alliance. There are lots of tensions from within. Really? They have different, they have different visions of what things should be like right now. The, the visions don't matter as much because Nabi Haberi is sort of the, you know, he's very much a godfather figure. Mm. of the Amal movement and he's still you know he's like in his late 80s at some point when he passes away I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen to that alliance but I mean I obviously cannot predict that's interesting I wasn't aware of that um so Hezbollah and Amal they they have this this protest October 14th and the first thing I heard is there's gunshots coming from roofs and people are getting yeah. shot what like where is that at now? I know at the time it was extremely confusing. People weren't sure what it what it was. I heard some some it's Christian paramilitaries, some it's the the military, the Lebanese forces. What what's what happened? Do we know yet? We don't exactly know yet. No, um, and it's one of those things that most likely we will never know because I mean the entire this is the irony is that the entire protest originally was about preventing an investigation so you're not actually going to have an investigation into this either. Um it does seem likely although to be to be objective I will say that we simply do not know and it is not confirmed. I think it is a, there is a decent possibility that it was those Christian paramilitaries so that would be the Lebanese forces uh, which are right now being basically a rival party, a rival sectarian party, I would say, to the Hezbollah-dominated sectarian parties in government. There's a lot of reasons why one would conclude that. There's kind of like a political analysis. There's the, you know, um, so essentially what I would what what I would argue is a, as like as a likely scenario is that Samir Jaja, the leader of the of the Lebanese forces, is trying to replace or at least challenge, if you want the free patriotic movement because they both have the same democratic base uh, demographic base sorry yeah uh, i.e lebanese christians and so right now the fpm which is the free patriotic movement which is as i said the, the party of the president and is also christian christian majority is allied with hezbollah and amal but they are being put in kind of i would say uneasy uh, positions. They still officially support the investigation, for example, which obviously makes it quite awkward given that the two main allies are the most aggressively opposed to the investigation. And they are sort of well, what the Lebanese forces are trying to do, essentially, and that's kind of my interpretation, if you want, is to sort of say, well, you know, we are the real deal. We will oppose Hezbollah. We are here for Lebanon. We are the Christians, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And they're sort of playing that game. It's important to note that next early next year are the elections. I don't actually know what's going to happen there. I think that's a different kind of analysis that we need to kind of be to engage in. But I think that's one of the reasons, maybe one of the main reasons why there seems to be like like I think it's quite likely that it was them. 
That being said, we simply do not know. We simply do not know. You have everything from people saying it was actually a false flag operation from Hezbollah operatives. I don't think that's a likely proposition just because I don't know if they are that dumb. And there are others who are saying it was like rogue elements of the Lebanese military. I I, I mean, it's not impossible. Not, not, that's the thing. Neither of these three propos- propositions are possible, are impossible, sorry. But I just don't see that as being a likely one. So that's kind of like, that's that's my, you know, long-winded answer to just saying that we don't know who these who these snipers were. There is a likely possibility that it was the Lebanese forces. It's kind of their area. They were, you know, kind of there. That seems to be the likely the likely scenario, but I would I wouldn't be objective if I said that I knew. Yeah, um, I think what you're saying sounds like very likely, but at the same time, I, I think if they wanted to show like, yeah, we will fire on Hezbollah, why then not come out and say, yeah, it was us? I, I know that would obviously cause a lot of like violence, but it just seems like a weird. It's like why would they do it and then just be like, oh shit, like vanish? You know what I mean? It's maybe it was just to yeah. shoot people. I don't know. There are some, I think there are reasons, A, I, because if they actually acknowledge it openly, then that's officially war between them, or right, at least right. that that's an escalation. Yeah. And however, you know, as much as they want to show their strength, their forces simply do not compare to Hezbollah. There's just no comparison between the two forces. Mm. Uh, we don't have numbers of how much each group has, but Hezbollah has been training for a long time. They've been in Syria for eight, nine years now. The Lebanese forces have not really seen battle of this scale since the 1980s. And so, you know, realistically speaking, I just don't think they would be that confident literally telling Hezbollah, you know who we are, you know where we are, come at us. You know, I don't think it's that that straightforward. But another reason, which is slightly more insidious, I think, is that ultimately, I think, unless, so, okay, this is a likely, this is a possible scenario, I cannot the future, but I think a likely scenario is that the Lebanese forces and Hezbollah simply make some kind of deal. Because this mm. is always what happens. This has always been the case. This is not the first time this happens. In fact, now we're in a weird situation where uh, Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, uh, Nabih Berri, leader of Amal, are actually having the same exact position as Fuad Senyura, who I'll explain who he is later on, and uh, Walid Jumblat, the leader of the so-called Progressive Socialist Party. Basically saying that the investigation should stop, he should be replaced, it's all a corruption, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. What's ironic about all of this is that Fuad Senyura was sort of the reason why the last conflict happened in 2008 with Hezbollah. Fuad Senyura was the prime minister at the time, allied with the Saudis, and he, uh, you know, his government said that they're going to, to uh, confiscate the telecommunication network that Hezbollah was operating because they said, and I mean, that was. That was probably true that, you know, a lot of it was coming from Iran and Iran had this, you know, penetration essentially on Lebanese soil. Uh, Hezbollah within like the next day or something immediately declared war. And that's when you had this, the May events of 2008, kind of like a mini civil war over a few days when in that in that kind of span of time, Hezbollah essentially took over and its allies, Amal and the SSNP and a few others, essentially took over parts of Beirut and even parts of Mount Lebanon. And to this day, some of those demarcations still exist. If you go to uh, Hamra Street, which is the part of West Beirut that's like in between the two major universities in in Ras Beirut, you would see the SSNP flags, those, you know, swastika flags. They say they're not swastika, but they're essentially swastika. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a storm, Joey. Don't worry. Right, right. So, you know, you will see those flags there. Those are from 2008. They were not there before then. That's, That's kind of the background to that. 
but anyway, that's a kind of a side note, yeah. Um, okay, then, well, let's, let, let's maybe go into actually kind of how the day unfolded. Obviously, snipers started shooting from the roofs, but yeah. then we saw this footage, like, it just all hell broke loose for, like, a, a couple of hours, right? Like, maybe just kind of take us through it if you can. As much as I can. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so the snipers did, uh, as you said, uh, started shooting at the crowd within very quickly i actually don't know the exact timeline but definitely within the hour or so you have hundreds of uh hezbollah men who were basically called uh, for backup so part of the conspiracy is due to that if you see what i mean like it was extremely well organized although it mm-hmm. it wasn't it just seemed that way because you had all of these people as backup but you know people who know hezbollah know i think by now that they always have kind of like a number of men who are willing to just put on guns you know and just go to fight yeah um it was extremely chaotic. Uh, luckily, only six people died, and that's already a lot, obviously, including one woman who was just in her kitchen in the house, and she was Mariam, there was, right? Yeah, Mariam. And there was a you know a a, a stray bullet, and unfortunately, that killed Brutal. her. Uh, so you know th- that's that's sort of what happened. It it lasted a few hours. It was extremely chaotic. A number of um, Hezbollah Amal. I don't always know who is which, but, you know, uh, one of the two, they were together, started launching uh, RPGs, um, clearly not knowing where to aim. There was a lot of videos and journalists who were there and who, like, testified on, you know, posted on Twitter and stuff. Like, you know, they were interviewing some of these men and the men were not, they didn't know exactly where they were shooting at. They were shooting in the general direction of maybe where they heard the sniper or something like that. So that's why you had all of those images that, for you know many people in Lebanon are very iconic of the civil war which is like you know the bullet uh ridden buildings essentially right mm-hmm. and that's sort of what happened uh dozens I don't unfortunately I don't have the number but definitely dozens of people were injured so I don't know if the uh, if the death tally will go up but you know lots of shops were destroyed there were these horrific images which again reminds us of the 80s especially, but also, you know, the 2006 war and so on with, between Israel and Hezbollah of children kind of waiting, children in school, I mean, waiting uh, in the hallway. Um, I can give some kind of personal anecdotes. I have a couple of friends who were in one of the, next to one of the areas that was, um, that like where it was, there were a lot of gunfires. Um, they had to leave uh, basically running from, from the house because the bullets were getting very close. Uh, a friend of mine like has a photo that he posted on on Instagram a few days ago of like him holding like I think 20 bullets in his hand because that's just how many bullets were just flying around um you know so, just so many different things Fa- uh, parents one person posted on Twitter um uh, basically like the the headmaster of a school or some person in the, at the school saying please come and take your child we can't guarantee their safety essentially something like Jesus that Jesus Christ you know it's it's a densely populated city, you know, yeah. like at the end of the day, if you're going to do guerrilla warfare there, you will absolutely be killing people. There's just no way around it. And so it's been their decision to go ahead with it uh, regardless. Uh, and I like, I have to be, I don't know. I get random accusations online sometimes. Like I'm too soft on, on other parties that aren't Hezbollah just because I'm so opposed to Hezbollah. But like, just to be clear, uh, all of those parties have done this in the past, and many of these parties may still do so in the future. It just so happens that right now the dominant political party is Hezbollah, and I think that no analysis, as and as I said, it's not just having it's not about having majority of the vote, but it's just the question of who is the de facto kingmaker. 
And Hassan Nasrallah, as a leader of a political party, gives more speeches than the president and the prime minister combined, and the speaker of parliament for that matter combined. He sets policies, de facto sets policies, because essentially we can't do anything about it. It's really that simple. And so for me, any kind of analysis that doesn't start from that recognition, if you don't start from that recognition, then it will look weird as to why are they opposing an investigation so much if they have nothing to hide? Well, because they have stuff to hide. You know, it's not yeah, it's yeah. not rocket science at the end of the day. It's we're talking about militias. They are the biggest militia, but all of the other political parties, including the Lebanese forces, the Free Patriotic Movement, the PSP, the SSNP, Amal, uh, I'm probably forgetting the the the, the phalanges, the kataib, as, as we call them in Arabic, and a number of others. I'm probably forgetting the future movement. Obviously, they all have their own militias. They all have their, you know, the difference is just how organized are they compared to the rest. And as I said, right now there is simply no comparison between the capacity that Hezbollah does. Although they usually over, you know, they kind of they say that they have a hundred thousand armed fighters, and stuff. they always exaggerate. We know that, but. Objectively, they have definitely more men ready to fight than any of the others. And I think that's just an objective fact. Yeah, well, I saw online, um, I checked, and I'm pretty sure it was new. There's video of like loads of Hezbollah fighters gathering. Um, they're kind of doing that, that salute they do. It looks like Nazi salute, Roman salute, whatever it is. There was fucking thousands of them, hundreds of them maybe, not thousands, but like... It was in the hundreds, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like they have the fighters there. Um, so, so what what is happening now? Obviously, it didn't go on. Thank God for two days. It was over within a few hours. Um, but now, obviously, things are very tense. Friends, I'm speaking speaking to in even Beirut are just like fucking terrified. And I know Hezbollah have kind of come out and said a lot of stuff. Um, maybe just kind of give us an idea of where it's at now, because obviously that was a like you said a very big event. It hasn't been like that since the eighties in Beirut. Yeah, I would say since 2008, if we include the that mini civil yeah, war that course, I mentioned. Yes, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, yes, be, be, besides that, really, we haven't really seen this in a long time. And so for my generation, for the most part, this is kind of new. And for younger people, this would be the first time um, of that scale anyway. What's happening right now, I mean, a number of things. Hezbollah has accused the Lebanese forces of being those, those men on the roofs, those snipers. As I said, I think that's a likely prob- uh, uh, possibility, but I, I just don't know. Uh, the Lebanese forces have obviously denied this, and basic. So let me let me put it this way: the the tactic of the Lebanese forces this, as of now is to basically portray themselves as the defenders of Lebanon, and they do this in different ways. They they have their own audience to whom they kind of put, like they kind of promote a more sectarian Christian narrative. And there is the equivalent on the Hezbollah side in which when they speak to a specific audience, they have more of a sectarian Shia narrative. But then when they're talking to a broader audience, so they're trying to appeal to a broader audience because they need the system of Lebanon, part of its pros and cons at the same time is that you actually need the other sects, other sectarian warlords, other oligarchs, other what have you, other parties, in order to form enough coalitions to at least be in government. If not in government, at least in opposition within the government. So I think this is basically what, what's going to happen. Now, this is sort of like the headlines, right? What's also happening at the same time is just a number of things, and I'll try and enlist some of them. One is the case of Ibrahim Hotet, which is a, actually probably the most depressing story so far. So Ibrahim Hotet is the formerly was the spokesperson of the families of those who were killed in the Port of, uh, port of Beirut explosion in August 2020. A committee was formed, very similar, again, depressingly so, to the committee that was formed in the, in 1982, 
called the committee in English, the Committee for the Families of the Disappeared, i.e. the disappeared, those that were forcibly disappeared during the civil war, which as of now are still officially forcibly disappeared. So for those who know other contexts, it's not that dissimilar from either Bosnia or Argentina or Chile, you know, those, those kinds of mm. situations. <clears throat> Uh, Ibrahim Hotet um, was, as I said, the spokesperson of the, the um, that committee. I'm just going to say the committee spokesperson. And on October 15th, he released this very bizarre video in the evening. I sent it to you, um, basically saying that he denounces the investigation. Yeah. Now, now this is very weird for various reasons. A, the body language is quite troubling. You can see him looking over his shoulder. Basically, looks like a hostage video. Um, he hasn't been really reachable since journalists, including friends of mine have tried to reach him that he was usually very easily approachable. He wasn't picking up his phone and it sort of took everyone by surprise for the simple reason that he was actually one of the most vocal supporters of the investigation, including that very same morning releasing statements to that effect. Um, so the likely story is that, and I will try and, you know, I'm using terms that are objective. It was my personal opinion. I will tell you absolutely. It's definitely Hezbollah. Mm. But I think objectively, the likely story is that he is being pressured. What happened is that the next day, the rest of the committee, basically everyone else. And remember, we're talking about over 250, I believe, people who were killed uh, either on the day of um, from the injuries sustained during the, the, Port of, the Port of Beirut explosion. Uh, reaffirming, so the, the committee, essentially what's left of it, most of it, uh, re reaffirming their support for George Tariq Bitar. Uh, they re-read uh, re it today, and I'll explain in a bit why they had to restate it. Uh, and today as well, uh, the fire brigades union, um, or the, sorry, the families of the fire brigades uh, of Beirut also released a statement supporting the investigation. And the reason why the fire brigade is relevant is because I think 19 or 20 of them died in that explosion. It's actually one of the biggest scandals of the past couple of years. Um, and the reason why they had to restate it is that as of a couple of hours ago, before we started recording, he even officially went to the Ministry of Justice, officially demanding the resignation of Judge Tariq Bitar. So what's happening now is, the, and this is what I mean by more insidious, it's, this is much more dangerous in many ways than any kind of open street battle is trying to force the judge from resigning. I think that they have concluded that he probably is not going to resign. I mean, he may still might, so I'm not, I don't exactly know. But as of now, he, this does not seem like he's going. it's going to happen. So what's the best thing to do? Basically say that there are two committees, not actually one. One committee is saying that they support the judge and another committee, which as of now is just one person, but you know the former spokesperson, so this carries a lot of weight, uh, is saying that the judge needs to stand down. So you see what's happening now. Now you, you can easily say, even like on a legal level almost, well, you can't, you, you may argue if you are already biased towards Hezbollah, let's say, that we will simply not recognize this committee, the one yeah. that we've known for the past year. We will recognize an alternative one. And the alternative one is essentially, you know, defanged. It's not actually calling for accountability, you know. That that's basically what happened, and this has already happened in the past. So this rule book isn't exactly new. Yeah, and and that just creates more conflict as well, right? It's like you've created another camp within the camp, sort of thing. Like who believes which yeah. one? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I think the the probably what's just going to happen is he is isolated, uh, Ibrahim Hadid, unfortunately, and I don't quite know what's going to happen because if we assume that he has been threatened, then one should also assume that, you know, the threats are going to, are basically permanent. They're just going to be, and I should say he is 
the brother of someone who died um, in in the in the explosion. Really? Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah that I, I imagine that ha holds a lot of weight to it as well for him. Um, obviously, this is this isn't just kind of coming out of nowhere, and it's not no. just at the level it is because of the explosion. I would argue the politics in Lebanon has a lot to do with this kind of chaos and confusion. Um, where is that at now? Like I, I've been trying to keep up with it, but it just seems to be at a constant gridlock. Like the political situation within the government. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, so you have a. I mean, I think the first time you had me on was end of 2019, right? Yeah. And back then. I remember basically telling you that I'm not entirely sure whether Hariri is actually gone because he had resigned back then. <laughs> and you were right. <laughs> I was right. So yeah. since then, he did come back. So there was Hassan Diab after him when he resigned. Then he came back to the scene and then he resigned again. And now we have Najib Mi'ati. Now, Najib Mi'ati, and this is a very Lebanese thing, is another uh, billionaire. Almost all of our prime ministers in the past 30 years have been billionaires. And this is a country, and I'll give some statistics in a bit that I took down before. Um, having this chat with you just to kind of give just to sh show how extreme we're talking what what they what when we say wealth inequality in Lebanon what what we're talking about so anyway Najimi Ati's role right now as um, uh, prime minister and kind of a parenthesis because I think your listeners may know this but he's actually linked in a very his family is linked in a very weird way to the Myanmar junta right now yeah it's 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 kind of a, it's a mess it's a mess but anyway his official uh, job right now is to resume the negotiations with the IMF, essentially, to, to ask for another bail, bailout. Now, this bailout will essentially effectively be, and I think it probably will happen, a bailout of the banks. Not that dissimilar than what happened back when the financial crash happened in the States. Uh, and I think a likely proposition, if you want, is that they're going to actually sell off even whatever's left of state assets, which at this point isn't that much. But it's it's still devastating in the sense that okay, let me just give you statistics to kind of give some some yeah. decent idea. So um, this I think is from the World Food Program. Um, food prices have gone up six hundred and twenty eight percent. The lira, as in the Lebanese pound, has lost ninety percent of its value since two thousand and nineteen. The minimum wage is effectively forty dollars right now. Um, the um, Sorry, let me one more. Yeah, some 79% as of now of people in Lebanon, citizens of or in Lebanon live in poverty with refugees and other migrants. Uh, the, the numbers are above 90. In some cases, uh, I think one statistic put like food insecurity at 95% of all, basically, basically everyone. Uh, electricity blackouts are very regular. Uh, I think the most recent one is either ongoing or I forgot if it's still ongoing, but it's like three, it was three days long. Most people are getting some like an hour, maybe a day, if that. Uh, many people rely on both public and private generators, and both of those haven't really been coming through. So pretty much no one, with the exception of maybe the ultra-rich, have access to 24-7 electricity right now. Um, I think the World Bank said that Lebanon is going through one of the world, the worst economic crisis in like 150 years or something like that. So... And we're talking we're talking about the past two years, right? But this has this has always been how do I say this? You could have seen the early the early like the warning signs pretty early on. At the end of the day, this is an economy that is essentially based on debt and services and financial stuff like the banks. You know, basically the banks of the region. Lebanon was among other things the the bank of many many um, regional powers. Um, when 
the crisis have been hitting. I mean, what I'm talking about the global pandemic since 2020, but in the case of Lebanon, they started earlier because as early as 2011, one thing, one of the consequences of the Arab Spring is that you had basically Gulf money as in, you know, Gulf Kingdom money sort of dried up for a few years. And that sort of started the precipitation into this decline, essentially. But it, the decline, you know, sometimes it's steeper than others. And yeah, in the past couple of years, is when we've really been, you know, the, the expressions that people use is that, you know, we're, we're over the brink. That's kind of an annoying expression that media use a lot, like Lebanon's on the brink. It's mm. been on the brink for like a long time now, essentially. Um, what, what's the kind of reaction from people in Lebanon now? Some friends I spoke to, like, some are like, look, it's fine. Yeah, it was bad, but it's it's going to be all right. And then others are just like, no, uh, there's going to be another war. Like, I, I know it, I know it. It's it, from just a few people I speak to, it seems to be very kind of varying. Um, what have you kind of noticed? Yeah, a bit of that. Uh, there is a generational difference, although yeah. it's probably gen generalization. But a lot of people of the previous generation, so what you might call the war generation, don't seem to be reacting in the same way as everyone who's younger. Yeah. And that's, you know, you might you might attribute this to PTSD, coping mechanisms, what have you. I certainly see this in my own family. But when, you know, people who are younger, I would say, you know, effectively millennials and, and Gen Z or whatever, um, it's pretty hope. It's pretty it feels pretty hopeless. It feels pretty like even if we say, OK, a civil war isn't going to happen because you can rationalize and say stuff like, you know, Hezbollah is too strong anyway, so you don't have the conditions to have a rival militia or what have you. Even if you can sort of conclude that at the end of the day, there's no future. At the end of the day, pensions are gone, like they've been almost completely decimated. Public uh, jobs are almost completely gone. The only university in Lebanon, the only public university in Lebanon, Lebanon only has one public university, it's called the Lebanese University, uh, may shut down for good. Um, hospitals are constantly asking for, you know, basically on survival mode, whether public, but even some private hospitals on survival mode. Uh, public schools have been on and off for a long time now. And there's been a lot of talks of how, like, many of them will be forced to shut down permanently. Like, we're talking about in 2000, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, in 2018 or so, Maybe 2019, if I if I got the the, the the year wrong, the poverty levels in Lebanon was roughly 50, 30 percent, and now it's almost 80. So we're talking about like a pretty severe degradation of from almost all aspects essentially. Yeah. And so the thing is that people may cope in different ways. Some will be in denial. Some will be depressed. Some will, you know, different things. Unfortunately, a lot of a lot of those things have been happening. We've seen increases in suicides or suicide attempts. We've seen like, you know, the, the stuff that you might expect, you know, drug use, the kind of stuff that you might express when expect when people get more desperate. And at the same time, uh, you have a situation where people also feel stuck. At the end of the day, if you get a degree right now in Lebanon, what are you gonna do with it? You know, like it's it's creating a lot of situations where. I, I think it's even more difficult for people who are like, let's say now graduating or in school now or become, I don't know, people who are even younger than I am. I'm 30. I think it's, it looks even bleaker than it does to me. And it looks kind of bleak to me. So all I, what I would say is that this system is both resilient and fragile. Mm. It has both components at the same time. We see its fragility on days like last week, the clashes. Because at the end of the day, if you didn't really need to uh, to have these clashes, you wouldn't really do so. The risks would be too high for you. 
But if you have risks from within, from within your community, as I think Hezbollah has been witnessing in the past couple of years, and we can talk about that if you want, or for that matter, the rivalry within other uh, sects and other, and when I say sects, I mean specifically the politicization of sects. So it's not like the average person. The average person in Lebanon, honestly, for the most part, don't really think of I am Shia, I am Sunni, I am Christian or whatever. I mean, they do, but it's not that, you know, it doesn't stop you from having friends from other sects or, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but I'm talking about the sectarianism, the politicization yeah. of sects, the political system that exists in Lebanon, depends on these um, conflicts. At the end of the day, the reason why in 2019, the chants that we were chanting were, you know, Shabiri, the Scott and Islam, the people want the downfall of the, re- the regime. Another ch- chant was, sorry, chant was Shabiri, the Scott and So instead of the regime, you would say sectarianism. Another one was Killon, Yale Killon. All of them means all of them, right? It, it's, pretty straightforward like people knew what the problem with uh, were, was sorry and even back then i remember i think i said it on your podcast as well one of the biggest risks back then is that the rival political parties the sectarian ones i'm talking about those that aren't currently in power in the same way as they you know may have been some years ago because they've been uh, unseated by hezbollah and their allies may be trying to co-opt the uprising. And that's exactly what the Lebanese forces have been doing. That's exactly what the future movement on the Hariri have been doing. Although I think much less effectively than the Lebanese forces for various reasons. I mean, including the fact that Hariri was kidnapped in Saudi Arabia and that sort of thing. Forgot about that. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and so I think the risks right now is kind of what you're already seeing. I don't... So the escalation isn't necessarily as grandiose as... Let's um, putting Andrews in quotation here, spectacular, let's say, as in the 80s. It may still be. I mean, we haven't even brought up Israel. We don't exactly know what's going to happen on that front yet. But as far as intra-communal conflict, for lack of a better term, is concerned, I think they are likely to continue. I don't see them going anytime soon. With the potential exception of the elections and what happens then, because this can really go in you know multiple directions really both may i wouldn't go as far i'm not as optimistic as say like good because i don't think anyone like i don't think we'll have that many independents for example being able to win just because they won't be allowed to but maybe some of the establishment parties you know lose some votes or they get into a more uncomfortable position than they currently are those are that that is a possible scenario but we'll see Right, um, I, I hear what you're saying, but am I, am I right in saying that this is like a particularly vital election as well, even though it might, you know, people are not going to get what they want or whatever. It seems to be one that's just like, because of everything that's happening, it just seems like a really important one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I mean for one, it will be the first one since the 2019 uprising. Mm. And that has objectively changed a lot of things. I think objectively, like, I think it would be objective to say that significantly more people would be willing to vote for independent parties than ever before. and But because of that, I don't know whether the independent candidates will be allowed to run. Now, legally, they would be allowed to run, I think. I don't think they will legally be banned, but they will, you know, be intimidated. That's, that's what happened last time. Uh, you know, Hezbollah, for example, in southern Lebanon attacked a number of the independent candidates. Or oh, it might have been in the Bekaa. I may, I may get those two in Malbuk. I may get the two wrong, but either the south or in the Bekaa, I forgot where. But, you know, this may happen. This really may happen. I think if the sectarian parties 
are in a situation, and I hope it was clear when I say sectarian parties, I mean the establishment parties. If they are in a position where they are actually threatened in a significant, in a real way by an, an independent party, they may respond in a certain way. It may be a violent response, or it may be, you know, we will shut down the government response. Yeah. Uh, you know, by simply withdrawing our people and therefore you'll either have an election or you have to have a caretaker government and sort of very similar to what already happened uh, three, four times already in the past, like, couple of decades. That could cause violence in itself, though, right? Like, I know not an immediate one, but it did before. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely did before. And the main difference this time is that I don't know how it, if it does, and hopefully it doesn't, but how it would manifest itself. Because it's just, we're in a very weird situation right now where, as I said, the Lebanese forces have been trying to essentially ride the wave of the uprising. And this has benefited both the Lebanese forces and Hezbollah for the exact same reason. The Lebanese forces say, we are the revolution. And Hezbollah say, yes, you are the revolution. Therefore, the revolution is illegitimate, right? It works mm -hmm. for both sides. Um, I think they may actually gain some political capital from that, the Lebanese forces, I mean, uh, from the primarily FPM, as I mentioned, the Free Patriotic Movement, the other, the rival Christians, if you want to put it that way, uh, that currently are following Michel Aoun, the president, who is like the oldest uh, politician in Lebanon, I think he's like 88 or 89, uh, and his son-in-law, Jabron Basile, who is actually pretty unpopular, I think, including with like base the base of FPM and even honestly among Hezbollah and Amal supporters. He's just a very unpopular person, and he is the one who's going to lead the party after Michel on uh, resigns um, or dies, whichever comes first. Mm. And so, you know, <coughs> excuse me, I think that we're going to see a shuffling of that deck of cards, to use a very annoying metaphor. Um, but I don't know to what extent this is going to change things fundamentally, other than possibly, if not probably, just makes things even worse than now. Because you have to remember that even if we do get what is officially required of them, i.e. Najimi Adi, the current prime minister, who is, again, an extremely corrupt billionaire linked to all sorts of tax haven schemes, you can probably Google him and find a bunch of different stuff. If he manages to convince the IMF to uh, you know, fix that situation, let's say, that situation is a bailout of the banks. That what we're talking about isn't uh, increasing standards of living. It's not uh, fixing the public sector. It's not saving the, the you know this university or this school or uh, lifting uh, people out of poverty. Remember the numbers from twenty-ish percent to almost eighty percent. You know that's not the sort of things that's on the table between the prime minister and basically the Lebanese state and the IMF right now. Those are not the things that will be changed for the better if they do get that bailout. I think maybe what might happen if we do get that bailout is things feel that they're stabilizing for a bit. Yeah. But that's all relative. Yeah. That's all relative. Stabilizing, what does it mean if you don't have fuel or electricity or, you know, what, ha excuse me, what have you? All of these, all of these, options in front of us and i'm talking about like the official scenarios not like whether activists succeed or whether there's an independent or whether there's another revolution and we managed to kick some of them out you know those are scenarios that are possibilities but we don't know yet as far as everything is happening as far as what's happening right now is concerned 
there is nothing that objectively indicates and in, sorry indicates that it's not going to get worse objectively and on and that's you can basically you know have a chart in front of you and look at all of the different factors and you know the variables and what have you, you look at the poverty rates going up you look at unemployment's going up you look at people dropping out of school because they need to start working at their father's factory i'm, I'm making stuff up but you know that kind of scenarios yeah none of these things are going to be seriously tackled in any meaningful way by the current imf lebanon negotiations those are for the banks those are for preserving the lebanese state as it is effectively the bailout is a bailout of the lebanese establishment if you want me to put it that way and because of that because we know what that has meant in the past three decades it is just logical to conclude that because this very same uh, establishment and i'm really talking about give or take a few men those are the exact same men in power since the 80s some of them since the 70s and they're not going anywhere and when they pass away they will be you know in the the, the positions will be inherited by their son-in-laws or their sons or cousins or brothers or what have you always men of course and i just don't see how this is gonna change for the better if you see what i mean this it doesn't trickle down to the people by any means no, no, there's just not, there's, it's not even part of the narrative that yeah, it's not yeah, even yeah. part of their own discourse that it's going to trickle down to the people. They may kind of pay some lip service to it from time to time, but there's no plan, again, to save the electricity grid, to reform anything in any meaningful way. They're willing, you know, the dominant party is willing to effectively declare war to stop an investigation into one of the largest non-nuclear explosion in modern history. You know, like it's, it really, and sorry, I'm sorry for repeating this again, but it does not take, it's not rocket science to understand what their um, interests are. And to sort of, that's okay, drive that point point home. The last time we had elections, uh, well, that's when, uh, I'm forgetting the, I think 2016, if I'm not mistaken. It's all such a blur at this point. But like the last time we had municipal elections, you had on one side in Beirut, uh, Beirut Madinati, which just means like Beirut, my city which is basically a collection of like uh, technocrats, you know, a bunch of teachers, one movie director, Nadine Labake, who's well-known, a bunch of engineers, architects, what have you, kind of like middle-class professional, professionals mm. in, on one list. And the other list, which was called the Bierte, Beirutis, essentially, was effectively the entire government. And by effectively the entire government, I mean, including parties that are currently on opposing side of one another. So I'm talking about Hariri, um, so the Future Movement, the Lebanese Forces, uh, Free Patriotic Movement, I believe. I think the PSP as well. Uh, I'm probably forgetting Hezbollah wasn't running in Beirut because they run in another uh, thing, so they were not technically involved, but they were supporting that coalition as well. Mm. So the entire government, including warlords that were fighting each other during the civil war, warlords that fought each other in 2008, warlords that right now are fighting each other, came together in order to defeat a bunch of teachers and architects and one movie director. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. at the end of the day, it's not, you really, it's not that difficult, you know, like they know, they know how to deal with one another. And I can, depending on how much you want to get into it, I can give you more details, but they know how to deal with one another. They've been doing this for a long time, especially since 2005, which is our big date because that's when the prime minister at the time was assassinated. That's yeah. when the, the, um, Current president actually came back from exile. That's when the leader of the Lebanese forces, for that matter, came out of prison. 
Uh, that's when, of course, the Syrian troops that were occupying uh, Lebanon since since the the well, effectively since the 70s on and off, were forced to remove to to leave. You know that the so-called Cedar Revolution and everything that came after it. Since then, we've seen these two coalitions, March 8 and March 14. They don't really exist anymore, but it sort of works along similar logics. You might, you know, you might change the pieces of the chessboard against. I'm sorry for the annoying metaphors, but like you might change them a bit here and there, but it's more or less the same game, right? They know how to play it, and they much rather have one another as each other's opponents, if you see what I mean, then have to deal with some person saying, hey, we need universal healthcare. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's no real, like the, the, the opposing party, it's still the part of the old boys club rather than an actual revolutionary kind of new system or whatever. That's exactly it. And even, honestly, revolutionary is like optimistic, even reform. Yeah, like even, even reform, yeah. Even, we need things to be better party, you know, even some, something <laughs> like bit. that, yeah. that, that's, that would be way more dangerous than Hezbollah having to deal with the Lebanese forces, because at the end of the day, they can deal with one another. They can call each other mass murderers, but last time mass murderers, so Michel on the current president and Samir Jaja, some quick background, the reason why Michel on was president, and I hope those are not too many names, but the reason he's president is that Jaja, who was his rival for, they were warlords fighting each other during the war, essentially, two, the two rival Christian warlords. Um, for maybe people might know that what, there is an episode of the war called the War of Brothers, which is very annoying. But that was between them. Actually, no, that's actually Hezbollah and Amala. Apologies. The War of the Mountains, that was between them. <clears throat> uh, they, they, they made peace. They, they, they cut a cake together. Uh, they called it the Christian Wedding. And they... <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ. Yeah, I wish I was joking, but that, that's An actual cake, yeah? Yeah, and they cut it. You can you can Google on Jaja cake. You'll find it. It's very annoying. But <laughs> they came together and they made peace, and that's how Michelin became president. Michelin became president after being endorsed by and this again Michelin being the ally of Hezbollah became president after being endorsed by the party that is currently the most vocally anti-Hezbollah party. And this is a few years ago. This is like 2016 or something. It's just like nothing means anything, basically. No, it doesn't. I mean. It works with a percentage of the population, that's for sure. The yeah. base, as you might say. But consider that election turnouts are extremely low. It's 20% maybe, something like that. Really uh, maybe that low, yeah. I'm not exactly sure. So like most people just don't believe that anything can change. And because of not, be, I don't blame people who don't vote. Because as I said, if we do get 80% of people voting for everyone except the establishment parties, I don't know what's going to happen out of this either yeah there's this this sentence that i use in one of my own writings like the de facto sorry like the agents of war become the de facto agents of peace like they are the ones who hold the cars to the war they are the ones who can reignite a civil war and so they are the whenever when they say we don't want fitness like we don't which i don't know how to translate this sorry but like we don't want a civil war we don't want um, things to get worse. Be careful. You're playing with fire. Those are threats. D playing with fire means only something if there is someone on the other side who is capable of carrying out that threat. And that's what they're doing. And playing with fire, by the way, is what Nasrallah said just a few days ago. Especially for Nasrallah, that's basically saying like, you're playing here and we will fire back. You know what I mean? Like they're going to cause fucking war. Keep to, keep to your lane, you know? Yeah. Stick, stick to what you know. Uh, we you you're more than welcome to protests from time to time, but don't don't ask too much. And by too much, basically, don't ask anything. Effectively, yeah. 
Um, where this might sound a weird question, but in amongst all this, where did the the Lebanese military come in? Like even on the streets in Beirut, it just seems they. I saw a few pictures of them, but it was just kind of like, eh. Like I guess there's not much they can do. But like, where do they even come in into all this? It's complicated. There was actually one soldier who shot at a, I believe, Amal militia okay. member. Uh, but that person was quickly stopped by the other soldiers. So you have some soldiers from within that are like, you know, the, the ranks aren't as orderly as maybe they would like to portray it publicly. I'll try to be careful with my own words here, but, sure. um, you know, they 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 can't do much against Hezb- It's not exactly a secret in Lebanon that they are the second most powerful group, like armed group in the country. It's It's like, I don't know anyone who would seriously challenge that argument they have a greater legitimacy if it comes down to it and you have an actual fight between hezbollah and the army which for i'll explain why i don't think it's ever going to happen they may have more popular support but the reason why it won't happen is that the last time the army disbanded and basically was cut off into various sectarian uh groups that was the civil war and so it's an extremely sensitive topic that's why the army is the most secular institution you know that's why the army has people from all over lebanon actually this proportion proportionate number of people from uh working class and poor backgrounds for example from northern lebanon which is sunni majority uh, but also many shias many christians and so on and so and Druze and so on and so forth so i think they will i don't see a situation where they will get the order to fire back at hezbollah at the end of the day remember Hezbollah is the dominant party in government, and the government is the one that uh, controls the army. They have that kind of a parallel uh, institution, but not like you know in Egypt or it's not it's they're not entirely their own thing, and they can't just take over if they want to. They can only rule if they have the support of the other warlords. In fact, the current president Michel Aoun was a general of the army. Uh, the previous uh, mini- uh, president, sorry, Michel Slaiman, uh, was a general of the army um, as well. So generals of the army are often seen as, you know, the neutral guys, essentially. Mm-hmm. The guys to, the, the consensus candidate. That was the term that was used for Michel Slaiman. And indeed, he was. Michel Slaiman, you know, i not exactly a big fan, but not as bad as the current one. But what exactly does that mean? It basically means that you keep the boat floating the way things are. Nothing really changes. There's no real prosperity. Not you know, it's not like unemployment gets better. You know, none of these factors actually change. But the Lebanese and kind of like my own interpretation of things, if you want, they looked at what's happening nearby in Syria and Egypt, uh, Yemen, Libya, what have you, and you know, you basically say, well, we can deal with the devils that we know. You know, that was essentially the the bargain, if you want. Uh, Things were sometimes bad. Most of the time, things were fine. Like on a daily basis, you can get by, you can can live. Let's put it that way. And of course, that changes depending on class and what have you, and I'm generalizing. But it's not as bad. It wasn't as bad as it was now. Now that, if you want to call this a social contract, you may. It's not really. But let's say that social contract or that... Um, expectation that people had from the government, i.e., we complain about it, it's shit, we know they're corrupt, we know they're, you know, ex-warlords and oligarchs, we know all of that, but we can protest and they don't shoot at us. You know, that was essentially the, the bargain at the time. 
I think that's basically gone. And it's gone for ba- various reasons. One, the army itself has been cracking down. Uh, if not them, then the gendarmerie, as in like the parliament's, uh, sorry, I mean the parliament's guard. They're pretty violent as well, right? Like more so sometimes from what I've seen with the protests last year. The parliament's guard are essentially the private militia of Nebihibere, the leader of Amal. Ah, I see. Uh, That's why then. Well, he's the speaker of parliament and they are his guard. You know, it's pretty... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like, that's how it is, just how it works. Um, Yeah, yeah, they're absolutely very, very violent indeed. They actually, they had a reputation even back when the the protests were happening, like in October, November, December, more or less 2019. A lot of the time, it would be Amal beating people up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not always Hezbollah. They're usually together, but the Amal guys essentially would sort of stand out with their tattoos and flags and stuff. You would yeah. sort of know it was them. Uh, and yes, because essentially it's their leader who is the government. You know, it's that simple. Uh, like uh, you have to, like in Arabic, we, <laughs> I don't, but his supporters, the supporters of Michelin, the current president, they call him Bayil Kil. So like the father of everyone, effectively. Godfather. I'm 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 using that metaphor for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Like it's yeah. it's that. It's really it is really that. And I'm not kidding when I say, and I grew up in some of uh, some of this background, that there were people in my area, and I grew up in a very Christian, very conservative part of Mount Lebanon, who would look at this as something to look up towards. It's really that simple. Now they've never been a majority. You never need a majority for that to be the reality. But they have the guns. When they have the guns like that, it's it's a majority of firepower, right? So it doesn't matter whether they're majority democratically or not. Exactly. And you don't, there isn't this. There is not a single, with the exception of the army, there is no secular equivalent, if you want, uh, to Hezbollah or the Lebanese forces or what have you. You had in the seventies the PLO and the Communist Party. You had those stuff, but you know that was a very diff- different context back then. Um, yeah. So yeah, you don't really have that. And even if you did, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about more guns in a situation where there is one party that effectively dominates that field. Yeah. Um, I, I know you said, obviously, the, the Christian militias, they've not come out and said, yeah, it was us or anything. Obviously, you explain yeah. why that makes sense. But have they actually said anything? Like, have they even released any statements or, or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, like no, that? they have, they have. Yeah. They were saying stuff like it's... Um, you know, like this, it wasn't us fighting against Hezbollah. It was the locals. It was the people. Because again, this is the game, right? You want to say that mm-hmm. you are on the side of Lebanon. For the most part, they don't say stuff like Christians versus Shias. They're, they're not dumb for the yeah. most part. Sometimes they do. But they, they might say stuff like this is an attack on Christians. And then Nasrallah basically his response is that uh, we have nothing against Christians. Look, our main ally is Christian. You know, it's there. Is, there is a very Lebanese aspect to this. It goes back to the history of Lebanon, like Lebanon being effectively carved out as a Christian state, effectively in the like 1860s. Like I don't know if I want to get that down that road, but when when Lebanon was created after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, first like Great Lebanon under the French Mandate, and then the independence in the 50s, uh, yeah, 50s. Jesus, I'm forgetting my own history. Um, whatever, like that. That was done in a certain way as to privilege existing elites, Beiruti elites, which happened to be Christian and Sunni. You had this gentleman's agreement, if you want, between those two groups of elites, if you want. And the ones who were excluded from that were the Shias. And that's why you had the the seeds of um, 
later. The reason why, you know, I mentioned, you asked me in the very beginning where Amal came from. And I, co- I said that Amal's translation in English is the, Amal ba- basic, by the way, means hope in Arabic. Yeah. It's Amal is the, the movement for the dispossessed of the, of the dispossessed. I don't know how you call it in English. And so who are the dispossessed? Historically, those have been Shia Lebanese. And so this is part of the narrative. This is part of the story, the foundational myth, if you want, of first Amal and then Hezbollah that came out of Amal. And in fact, Hezbollah in many ways came out of Amal because Amal was seen as too complacent back then with the Israeli occupation. And Hezbollah was the one that was able to do the work effectively via Iran, obviously. I mean, Iran effectively created Hezbollah for all intents and purposes uh, in, in, in the mid in 84, I think, officially or something like that. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'm jumping around too much, but all I'm trying to say with all no, of no, this no, is too. that these political parties, these um, sectarian political parties specifically, all have their foundational myths. The, many of them, I won't list all of them, but the relevant ones in this case is that you have one group, Hezbollah, that calls themselves the Mkawame, the resistance, right? The thing is that most people don't know that there is another group that also calls themselves the Mkawame, and that's the Lebanese forces. Hezbollah would call themselves the Islamists, and the Lebanese forces were called Lebanese resistance. And the they're, past, they're they Christian would say the as Christian. well, though, right? They come out the Christian. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But they, in the past, they would say the Christian resistance. Mm-hmm. Now they would, they're trying to be, you know, more uh, whatever. They would call themselves the Lebanese resistance. And in their narrative, they were resisting the Assad regime. And in the narrative of Hezbollah, they were resisting the Israeli regime. And so you can really see how, depending on where you lived in Lebanon, if you lived in southern Lebanon in the 90s, let's say, when southern Lebanon was still being is occupied by Israel, part of your story is that the only group at the time that was doing anything about it was Hezbollah. If you're part of where I came from, I grew up not even knowing much about politics, but assume, knowing or at least assuming that the word resistance meant the Lebanese forces. Because that's just what that was everywhere around me on billboards and you know pamphlets and posters and graffitis and whatnot. And the story there in my own house, for example, was bombed by the Assad regime in 1990 before I was born, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, the story there was that oh well, this group of people defended the community against those foreign invaders. And you can sort of the facts don't matter as much as what fits within the story, if you see what I mean. And what fits within the story right now, and this works for both of them, Lebanese forces on one side and Hezbollah on the other, is that they are the ones resisting on behalf of Lebanon. Hezbollah will say that they are fighting the Zionists and the Americans and the usual stuff. The Lebanese forces will say that they are fighting the Iranians and Hezbollah and the Syrian regime and the usual stuff. It fits in both uh, narratives at the same time. The only reason why I would, even with that caveat, if you want, still focus more on Hezbollah is simply the fact that right now they are the dominant power. And I don't think there's any scenario in which that is going to change. Yeah. In the future. I think you're right. I think you're right. It's kind of a you know, cynical, but I think you're right. Like, how can it, you know, how can it at all? Um, all right, Joey, that was really interesting, mate. Is there anything else you want to mention um, before I let you go? I mean, I honestly, I mean, we did, the irony is that we're recording this on October 20th and three days ago was October 17th, which meant two years since the since the uprising even begun, right? Yeah. But this this is this this is the unfortunate, and you had like, you know, a few hundred people uh, attending in Beirut. And what's really interesting, and maybe I can kind of end on that, was that on that day, on October 17th, so basically a few days ago, uh, those few hundreds of people went down. 
but I decided to commemorate another time at this another date at the same time, uh, which is 6:07 p.m. Because at 6:07 p.m. on August 4th, 2020, is when the explosion in the port of Beirut happened. And so you have essentially this link, you know, subconsciously, consciously, what have you, a link between uh, the October uprising, which started this euphoria, essentially, this exhilaration, possibilities and whatnot, first slowed down, if not stopped by the pandemic. And then eight months later in August, effectively crushed by the explosion. And so people really feel that there was this window of opportunity It did not last that long in the end. If you think about it, it's just a few months. But so much has happened in those few months that I think it is worth re remembering that in the same way as no one really predicted October 17th, and I have a perfect example for that, if that's okay. Like I did an episode with, a, with an academic, uh, Andrew Arsene. He wrote a book called Lebanon, A Country in Fragments. Mm -hmm. And I, did a, I wrote a book review, I meant, of his book. And then I did an episode later on. And the book review was came out October 14th, I think, or something like that, just a few days before. And the conclusion that I reached basically was that yeah, things are bad. Things are really bad. Things are going to be bad for a long time. And there's no reason to believe otherwise. And three days later, I was wrong. Yeah, yeah. Lebanon, though, you know, Lebanon for you. What, uh, what a beautiful country as well. Like, I, I, anytime I go, like, it, I just think it's so fucking sad the, the way that the people yeah. have the, the grip on it, you know. But that's what it is. Um, mate, where can people find your work? Mention your mention your podcast as well. I think definitely our listeners would, would be interested in that. Sure, sure. Uh, the podcast is called The Fire These Times. I occasionally uh, do stuff on Syria and or Lebanon. Those are the two countries I focus on the most. But occasionally I will do stuff on Palestine otherwise. And I do also have, uh, it's a pretty, if I may say so myself, the episodes can vary quite a bit. Everything from like solar punk to mutual aid to organizing to some political thing to some history of something to mm -hmm. could be different thing yeah, people uh, are free to check out like the titles and stuff they will see like they can you know listen to whatever they want to listen to it's probably not every episode is for everyone i think but anyway so that's that's the podcast um they can find me on on when well, my website is just my first name and last name joyayub.com that's why i archive everything basically And I am on Twitter as well, um, at the same handle as well, at uh, Joey Ayub. Uh, just, just, spell, just spell your handle for me, because every fucking episode, someone messaged me like, what was their name? <laughs> It's like, okay, just so, if you just spell the handle. J-O-E-Y-A-Y-O-U-B. All right, mate. Thank you very much. That was excellent. Really appreciate that, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. That was Joey Ayub speaking about the recent gun battle in Beirut uh, between Hezbollah, Amal, and possibly the Lebanese forces, possibly a different Christian militia, possibly, who knows? Um, still, nobody is 100% sure. There are some people online saying everybody knows who it is. They're definitely, it was this one, it was that one. Relax, um, nobody is actually sure yet. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. For just five quid a month, you get bonus episodes. Um, there's loads of content out there on the Patreon. We've got uh, narrated articles, access to the community Discord, video extras. Um, there's a whole series on there. Um, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek called Too Cool for J School. It's about kind of teaching people... Um, I guess how to be a reporter, at least giving them tips and advice um, for myself and several different people. 
yeah, there's a lot on there. Patreon.com slash popularfront or go to popularfront.co slash support. Remember, we do not accept any corporate backing. We don't have any rich benefactors, nothing like that. So the way we make money is through Patreon and merchandise. If you want to buy our t-shirts, um, they're cool as fuck, obviously. Go to www.popularfront.shop. You will see them there. Um, thank you very much to our sponsors. This episode was Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee business selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue 97239. Um, we also, this episode is also sponsored by Grind Core House. A pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Find them on social media at Grind Core House. The episode was also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world. Buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use promo code popularfront10 for 10% off. If you want to um, advertise on the Popular Front podcast, uh, email me at Hanrahan, so that's my surname, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N, Hanrahan at pm.me. If you want to do it, please do not waste my time. We've had lots of people saying, yeah, I want to do it. Like, all right, cool, this, that, and the third, and then they just kind of fall off. Um, we're not expensive, but we're very picky about who we'll advertise um, on our on our uh, podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, uh, Twitter, it's we got a new Twitter now, it's at popularfront underscore. We've started using the Twitter as we use the Instagram, kind of just Caden, um, lad on our team, puts out kind of news updates on the world and conflict out on the Twitter. Same as the Instagram, uh, Instagram is at popular.front. Although right now we're getting kind of battered um, by the pro censorship um, mods and algorithms of Instagram. Um, basically they've taken away the link button from us, they won't let us stream live. I think we've been banned like 12 times, 18 times, I think one count someone said. Um, luckily the account is still there, but whatever, a really awful, awful company, but it's a useful platform. So anyway, crying, ranting, whining over, uh, instagram.com slash popular.front. Uh, YouTube, youtube.com slash popularfront, please do subscribe to us there, we're almost at 100,000 um, subscribers on there now, which is great, I think. Um, yeah, man. Uh, I think that's all the, the socials. I don't know. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, music in this episode intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black, as always. Um, go and find his music at samblackpf.com. Every beat music you hear from Popular Front uh, episodes will not be on there on his SoundCloud. He puts it wherever he wants, and that's that. Um, sorry, you know, if there's a beat you, you particularly want. You know, maybe he'll put it up if you ask, but don't just just kind of leave him be. You know, he's a busy guy, um, and he does all our music, um, and he's just churning out really good stuff all the time. Thank you to the high tier Patreons. They are Champagne Anarchist. Uh, that's a good name. Thwat, Thwat, Twat. I don't know. <laughs> Elise Middlefar, Jess Lewis, uh, or Louis. Sorry, David McManus, Joaquin Williamson Holt. Yudoye Travis, uh, he Yudoye messaged me and was like, "You have been getting my name right, so I'm fucking glad." So that's good. If anyone, in, if anyone's, if I'm saying anyone's name wrong, do message me and let me know. Um, Tom Petrie, James Leons or Lyons, I don't know. Kate, Lisa Milgram, Bradley Davies, Brendan Crave, Pete Hesher, Rx, A Nicole, 
Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, MJ, Glitter, K Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, Adam H, Carante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, <coughs> Todd Cravens, excuse me, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ron Swanson, check your email please, uh, Ian Froese, James Cully, Tynan Daly, Ethan, Fitzmadrid, Ed Coulthard, Mike Barone, Ben, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, George Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Noaiz, Nate Van Dor, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergschneider, JL, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarek, Dan Donham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Point Bitcoin Did, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Maurice Zimbal. Thank you all very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to support Popular Front, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. If you want to buy our merchandise, as I've said, uh, go to popularfront.shop. As I mention and moan about all the time, um, we are funded completely in a grassroots way. We do not take money from governments. We do not take money from big business. We certainly don't take money from other media corporations. Um, no big corporate events, nothing like that. So if you do want to support us and you want us to keep going, trust me, it's greatly appreciated and it all goes back into Popular Front. Keeps this running. Patreon.com slash Popular Front. Cheers.